his um, doctoral dissertation on right now. It's about this whole concept <laughs> of ascent and up language and all that stuff in, in the Bible. So um, I trust God's providence that he picked out this passage for me, that God picked out this passage for me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have uh, known Phil since he first arrived in Chicago and uh, have followed the story of Embassy uh, through many different twists and turns and ups and downs and different places that you've met. I've never actually been here in person, but I've, I've been a close observer of, of you guys, and I am very excited to kind of come and see, uh, see it in, in the flesh. So uh, very excited about what God's doing in your church, and uh, I'm glad that Phil has some time off uh, this, this summer. Um, my kids had soccer camp earlier this summer. That's, right, the thing that you do in the summertime with kids. You put them in sports camp, right? And uh, the day after soccer camp ended, one of my daughters said to me, Dad, my body is still tingling after I kicked that goal. <laughs> and I was like, oh, honey, welcome to the thrill of sport, <laughs> you know? It is, uh, it is it's, it's, that's why we do this. That's why we, we love this. Have you ever felt something like that? A, a bodily reaction to, to, to uh, um, a victory, a great feat, something that you've done? Anybody had that experience? It's great, right? Maybe you're not a sports player. Maybe you, you can't do it yourself, but you watch other people do it. You can still feel the same thrill uh, vicariously, sort of watching someone hit a walk-off home run in the ninth or, or a buzzer beater draining a shot, a three-point shot at the end to, to win the game. Or You, know, you, you see something amazing and, and, and you, bot, you pump your fists, right? You, you, you get into it. You feel it. It's joyful. The thrill of sport. Maybe sports isn't your thing, <laughs> uh, but, but you felt something similar, right, in other arenas. Maybe it's um, you're in the, 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 you play the financial markets and, and you've seen the thrill of, of, of great gains on, in the stock market. Maybe career success for you. Maybe you're a political junkie on, on election night. You felt that feeling when your, your body kind of erupts in this visceral um, celebration, of something that happens. Maybe it's um, watching war movies. Anybody seen the, the new Top Gun lately? In our theater, there erupted into applause at a certain point in that when they, they, they get the, well, I won't tell you what happens if you haven't seen it, but <laughs> maybe it's a romance movie. Uh, we, we had COVID recently and there was a lot of Hallmark Channel TV watching in our house and I one time heard like cheering from the living room from my wife and five daughters when a guy and a girl finally got together. Whatever it is for you, you know that feeling, right, of elation. And I wonder if you've ever felt something of that emotion with regard to religion. Do those things go together there? God made us with a capacity for joy. He made us with bodies to express that joy with. Have you ever felt that? In response to God? Has your body ever tingled in response to truth about God? Now, I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too right now. It's awkward to say that. It feels a little uncomfortable. I get it. I'm uncomfortable with that kind of language. I think it's because we've seen abuses of it. We've seen excesses of it. What the old uh, 
the old people used to call the enthusiasts, right, that uh, are just about the emotional. It's just raw uh, emotionalism. It's kind of weird. It can be very shallow. It's often very manipulative, right? You can kind of play on people's emotions and passions, and you can produce these surfacey displays of excitement with the right formulas. Dim the lights, cue the music, build up in the tempo. I mean, it can be manufactured. You can do it. It's merely the product of chemicals in the body and social pressure, and then we can call it the Holy Spirit when it's really just some kind of Christianized version of the, the magic of Disneyland, right? Is that all Christianity is? Is it really just kind of a, a manipulative sort of way to sort of replicate this, this feeling by using a religious angle? I don't think so. I think there is something more. But a lot of people do it that way. A lot of churches do it that way. Superficial religious shows, celebrations. And me personally, I find those to be silly. I find those to be dangerous. But then I look at scripture, scriptures like this one, and I also have to admit and understand and confess that, on the other hand, cold, cerebral, staid, uh, stoic, dry, mere kind of mental assent to certain doctrines on paper, that's also dangerous. That also has its own problems. We can't be unmoved by majestic spiritual matters. So I'm a religious leader, and I agree with Jonathan Edwards in this sense when he says about his role as a preacher, as a religious leader, he said, quote, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. Have you heard that quote before? He's saying, I, I'm, my job is to see the people that I'm talking to get their spiritual affections stirred, but I'm only going to do it with truth. I'm not going to resort to other techniques. I want people to know how to express heartfelt emotion about and to God. I want my church, I want Embassy Church to grow in appropriate expressiveness and joy. I want myself, I want others to know the thrill of worship. But I don't want to do it by scolding you or guilting you. I don't want to do it uh, by resorting to other tactics to, to whip up emotional frenzy. I don't want to force it. My ministry MO, I think it's the MO of Phil too, and your other elders, is simply to preach the glorious gospel of God from every part of scripture, to show you the wonders in the word, and to pray that the Holy Spirit uses his word to work in you, to feel it, to know it with your whole body, to delight in it, that's what I'm trusting God to do today. I'm going to be continuing in your summer uh, series in the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms is that collection of usually, not always, but usually small, short poems. Um, it's roughly in the middle of your Bible. 
Like I said, please open up and have that in front of you as we're looking at Psalm 47 today. And in the Psalms, what we get is this perfect blend of truth and emotion, right? Feeling and uh, theology right there together. It's, it's beautiful. Today we're going to be meditating on Psalm 47, which is a song about singing. That's what we're talking about t- together today. And this psalm clearly calls God's people to loud, jubilant, full-bodied praise. That's, that's what this passage does. But it also gives us the reason why, right? It's not just a call for, come on, everybody, let's get fired up and give God a, a, a clap of praise, right? That's, people do that. That's not what this is doing. It's giving us real, solid reasons to praise God with real, full-throated, jubilant excitement. It celebrates truth. And in short, the truth of this text that we're looking at today is just this. Christ's enthronement calls for enthusiasm. Christ's enthronement calls for enthusiasm. And I'm using enthusiasm in a good way here, a good kind of enthusiasm, a truth-induced, theologically informed, biblically responsible, full-throated enthusiasm. Let's pray. Lord, would you use your word to confront us, to convict us, to show us our, ourselves, maybe our lack of appropriate affections in response to these truths. Pray that you would open eyes by your Holy Spirit to see wonderful things on this page that we're looking at right now and that the singing in the second half of this service would be a little different than the singing in the first half. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to just go through the text, so keep it open in front of you. Um, the, the part in bold, probably, in your Bible that says God is king over all the earth is uh, a helpful summary, but it is a summary that's added by the English translators. It's not the official title of this psalm. Uh, in other words, it's not in the inspired text. But the next part that is in all caps right under that is part of the original Hebrew. Uh, and it says this, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So let's just pick that apart really fast. No, no word, every jot and tittle is inspired and is important, right? So what does this mean? So to the choir master tells us that this was to be used in corporate worship. It was to be employed by the, the liturgy leaders in the temple setting and at certain festivals to guide God's people in their praise. A psalm of the sons of Korah. That's a, an often used superscript in the Psalms. Psalm 47 is uh, in a, uh, surrounded by several of these psalms of the sons of Korah. You can look in the pages before and after and see that there. The sons of Korah had come to have a special role in the temple worship. First Chronicles 9.19 is an example. So here's a clan from the tribe of Levi that provided the worship leaders. So... Like these people here that helped lead the praise in that, that time in Israel's history, they would have all been from the family of Korah. It's always amazing to me because do you remember who Korah was? 
Remember who Korah was in the Bible? He was the guy who led that rebellion against Moses and Aaron and God back in Numbers 16, right? And the ground literally opened up and swallowed him and everybody with him. That was Korah. Not a good guy, not a, not a paragon of, of um, proper worship in the Old Testament. Korah was a bad guy. And yet, out of this pedigree of sin, there was a remnant of his family that was spared by God's grace. They weren't decimated. His whole line wasn't wiped out. Isn't that cool? The sons of Korah became the leaders of God's proper praise. The sons of Korah. It doesn't make any sense except that's, that's how God's grace works. Isn't God so good and gracious and merciful? And isn't it the case that the loudest singers of God's praise are those who are most aware that they are here by mere mercy? Mere mercy. Do you, do you come here today with some kind of sense of your own goodness? Your own worthiness? Pretty good person. Come to church at 1130. It's like lunch hour. Who does that, right? Like, I'm committed. This is a good church. I, I do the right, I believe the right stuff. Does that kind of snuck in a little bit to your Sunday morning motivations? You come from a good moral family, maybe? Or do you come here with a keen awareness that you don't even deserve to exist? And yet God has been gracious to you. He's providentially preserved your life to this point and he's even given you eternal life. You are here by mere mercy. That starts to prime the pump of praise, right? And we're just in the, in the superscript here. So let's, let's keep going. Let's keep going through this psalm. And I'm going to do it in three parts. Three things I want us to see. First, what, what did it mean in its original context? Second, uh, what does it mean as we zoom out and look at it in the context of the whole Bible? And then third, we'll conclude by trying to see what it means in our context today. So what it meant then, what it means in the whole Bible, what it means for us today. First of all, in its original context, let's do some some study and exegesis of the text. Clap your hands. That's how the psalm starts. Is this just kind of happy clappyism, right? Like, uh, are the sons of Korah trying to kind of get people to clap to a beat in the hope that this will engage the crowd and wake them up a little bit and make the ceremony seem more lively and appeal to the younger generation? No. There's something more to the clapping here. Let's investigate. When do you usually clap your hands? When do you normally clap your hands in uh, the course of normal life? It's when, it's when something spectacular has happened, right? Like something amazing and you just applaud. That's the universal human response to seeing something marvelous. You clap at the end of a great performance, right? You applaud when something has delighted you. Now, when do we see people clapping in the Bible? If you just do a, a concordance search and see the first time clapping comes up in the Bible, it's this example from 2 Kings 1.12. Listen. Then Jehoiada the priest brought out the king's son, Jehoash, and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him 
and they clapped their hands and they said, long live the king. That's the first clapping in the Bible. So people clapped for a king. We have a king on the throne. Jubilant eruption of applause. Therefore, Psalm 47 has been classified as an enthronement psalm. It's describing the response to a royal coronation. There's a king. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. It's a joyful occasion, right? Not, it's not just um, a, uh, oh, that, that, that is great. We have a king. It's like, we have a king. And they're, they're erupting in this joy. Clapping and joy go hand in hand in the Old Testament. One example, Isaiah 55, 12. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So there's a new king on the throne. And it calls for clapping, loud songs of joy. But who is this king? Who's the king? We see here that it's none other than God himself. Verse 2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. This is not just the celebration of a, of a human king, a mere uh, descendant of David or David himself, reigning over a particular little nation like Judah. This is a song of celebration of God's kingship over all the earth. You see that? That's why it says, clap your hands, all you peoples. All peoples, all nations, everywhere are called to recognize and honor the Lord as the universal, sovereign ruler of everything. The people of the Old Testament did not just think that they had their own God, and the, the Assyrians had their gods, and the Canaanites had their gods, and we have our God. No, they knew him to be the most high God who reigned over all the world that he created. Charles Spurgeon articulated it. This way, he said, our God is no local deity, no petty ruler of a tribe. In infinite majesty, he rules the mightiest realm as absolute arbiter of destiny, sole monarch of all lands, king of kings, lord of lords, not a hamlet or an islet is excluded from his dominion. That's our God. He's the king of all. Now, if you start to grasp what that means... If it's true that this God we're talking about is a lofty deity unlike any other, then he's to be feared, right? He's to be taken seriously. So the old King James would, would render verse 2, fear, or for the Lord most high is terrible. That's the old English translation. Terrible. Not a teddy bear. He's terrible. We worship our God with fear and reverence because he's a consuming fire. The book of Hebrews will tell us. He's not a figurehead king like King Charles will be when he ascends the throne of England soon. The Lord Most High cannot be questioned. He cannot be challenged. He cannot be succeeded by anyone else. He cannot be avoided. He is the king over everything. High, lifted up, the train of his robe fills the temple. He is sovereign. He is almighty. Behold our God, seated on his throne, as we just sang. 
He's to be revered. He's to be feared for his unlimited power and authority. Next in verses 3 and verse 4, these verses refer to what Yahweh did for Israel in the exodus and the conquest. What did he do? He annihilated the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He embarrassed the supposed superpower of the day. He brought the cowering sinful Israelites out and into the land of Canaan. And as he did, he destroyed the idolatrous, wicked nations that lived there by his mighty hand. He subdued peoples under us, Psalm 47 says, and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So Israel's God had shown his supremacy time and time again throughout Israel's history. And it wasn't because the descendants of Jacob were great. They were weak. They were sinful. But the Lord loved them. That's the other part you need to see here. That's, it's this, the juxtaposition of these two realities of his highness and his, his kingly authority and his love. You see it there in Psalm 47? Are you looking at the same page I'm looking at? Right at the end of verse 4. The great king had made them his special people that he loved. Selah. Let that sink in. The great and terrible, almighty king of the universe over all nations, who is to be feared, loves his people. You starting to feel a little something? Whoa. The first four verses of this psalm and the last four verses sort of mirror each other. And so what that means is that verse 5 comes right at the epicenter of the psalm. And verse 5 contains the main idea. You can kind of think of it as like four verses kind of stepping up and four verses kind of stepping down. And right at the pinnacle, at the apex, at the zenith, at the summit of it all is verse 5, which says, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. You see that at the center? Our God has gone up. Our king is on high. The verse echoes the language of 2 Samuel 6.15, where we see this language other places in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to Jerusalem. Was it just brought up kind of as mere sort of duty? Uh, something that was supposed to happen, they just decided to move the ark. No, the ark was brought up, it says, with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the scene where David is dancing his heart out, right? And his wife, Michal, is looking on him with derision. This is the scene of jubilant exaltation as God is sort of enthroned in the symbolic um, movement of the, the ark. You have in there jubilant praise side by side with great reverence because you remember that every six steps an animal was slain, right, and sacrificed. Because why? The first time they tried to do this, they didn't follow God's law. They didn't take it seriously. And Uzzah stuck out his hand and they had the ark on a cart where it was supposed to be carried on poles and he tried to stabilize it and he was struck dead. And they paused for a bit and they said, whoa, this God is not to be taken lightly. 
But then he, 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 they, they finished bringing the ark up and they sacrificed an animal every six steps and they danced and they sang with great joy because God is this almighty king and he's their king who loves them. The ark represented the footstool of God's throne. And as this footstool of God's throne is placed on the high place in Jerusalem and later a temple is kind of built around it, it symbolizes that God is there on high reigning he is their king so here's the picture the lord sits on his throne he's high and mighty and enthronement calls for enthusiasm it, enthronement calls for enthusiasm a shout the sound of a trumpet Again, we see an echo of this in 1 Kings 1, 39-40, when Zadok, the priest, took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. That's the response to the enthronement of God. Enthusiasm, right? He's the king. Now, we've gone up. We've seen the center at verse 5. Let's come back down on the backside of this majestic psalm. I said verses 6 to 9 mirror verses 1 to 4. I want you to see how this works. Let me show you. If you look at verse 1, it commanded clapping and shouting and songs of joy. Verse 6 says sing. It says it four times. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. The Bible really seems to think that singing is the fitting response to the joyful news of God's kingship. Then you got verse 7. Mirrors verse 2. Verse 7 likewise begins with the word for. It also refers to God's universal kingdom over all the earth. But then it repeats that call for singing. So songs or singing gets a total of six mentions in this little psalm. Why, why do you think that is? I think it's because singing is the perfect medium for expressing praise to God. It's more than just a, a guttural noise. It's not just a bodily movement. It's, it's, this, it's this perfect conjoining of truth and feeling. Notice that the, uh, the text says, sing praises with a psalm. Uh, or literally with a mascal, which is a poem, right? What is a poem? A poem is a coherent, constructed, logical arrangement of words that have meaning. And yet, at the same time, a poem uh, is beautiful. When it's poetic, it's aesthetic, right? So it also involves the affections. So you got the mind and the, 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 the heart. you got truth and you got feeling coming together in a poem. And then... You take a poem and you set it to music, to a melody, it just perfectly blends the intellectual and emotional aspects of us. Heart and, and mind come together and we sing. That's an appropriate, beautiful response to the fact that God is king. God is king, therefore we sing. Now, tying into verses 3 and 4, now verses 8 and 9 speak of the Lord's sovereignty over the whole world, right? God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. But here on, in the second half, a new element is added in. 
In verse 9, the nations are not just enemies to be put under God's feet. In verse 9, there is here the possibility that the other nations, in addition to Israel, can be grafted into God's beloved people. So listen carefully, listen carefully. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Who was Abraham? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, who was renamed Israel, from which we get the nation of Israel. But back at the beginning, when Abraham was called by God, chosen by God, he was given a promise. The promise was that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So again, this is not just King Yahweh and the people of Israel while everyone else eats dust. You see? Actually, God's kingdom is open to all nations. Anyone from any nation can come and be part of the people of the God of Abraham by faith. In Genesis 15.1, the Lord told Abraham, Fear not, I am your shield. So for those who come under the Lord's kingship, they come under his protection. They're not subject to his sword. They're hidden behind his shield. In other words, they have security. And Psalm 47 ends by saying, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He's the only one who can give us safety. He's the almighty king. And if he's on your side, who can be against you, right? He's the only one who can be our mighty fortress, which is what Psalm 46, just before Psalm 47, and Psalm 48 is about God our fortress. So truly, God, the king, is highly exalted. There is no other. He's unlike any other. He is the king of kings, and his enthronement calls for enthusiasm. That's the point of Psalm 47. That's how it would have been understood in its original context. That's how those who sung it with the sons of Korah as they went up to Jerusalem or worshipped in the temple on the top of Mount Zion in front of the footstool of God's throne, represented in the furniture of the Holy of Holies. That's how they would have understood it initially. You with me so far? You see that? Psalm 47, that's what it means. All right, now let's zoom out, not just looking at Psalm 47, but the whole Bible, and let's see how this enthronement psalm is pointing to something even more specific that's happened in Jesus Christ and how we have even more reason nowadays to be enthusiastic. Charles Simeon said that we are here exhorted to burst forth in joyful acclamations on account of the exaltation of Christ to his throne in glory. That's what this is ultimately supposed to lead us to. Let me show you. Psalm 47 is about the kingship of God, and there's all these connections here to Jesus, which reminds us that Jesus is God. Even though he's fully man, he's fully God. Jesus is God. He's called the Christ, right? Christ means anointed one, which has kingly connotations, right? You anoint the king. This is basically a way of saying Jesus the king. Jesus clearly went up to Jerusalem as a king, albeit an ironic one. He came as a king crowned with thorns. He was lifted up on a cross. But in doing so, he perfectly displayed his character and his love. He perfectly upheld the terrible justice that sin deserves, all the while making a way for sinners to be spared and become subjects in his kingdom. 
Love and justice meets there. At the cross, Christ also defeated all of his enemies. He defeated the enemies of sin and Satan. He subdued them under his feet. He triumphed over them. And he didn't stay dead, right? He conquered even death. On the third day, he got up, as, as the, some traditions say. He got up. And then he went up, right? He ascended to the throne of the universe. Jesus, the Christ, the King, is highly exalted. He's received a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is God who became man, who came down to make a way for us to be saved and in his kingdom, and then he got up and he went up and he reigns. He's enthroned right now as we speak. Speaking of the ascension in, in Luke 24, 51 to 52, we read that the resurrected Lord Jesus was carried up into heaven. And what happened? They worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. <laughs> the good and gracious king of the universe has come down to provide salvation and he has gone back up to sit on his throne. Christ's enthronement calls for enthusiasm. Christ has gone up with the shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. There's no mention of a trumpet at Christ's ascension. But one commentator points out the angels said that he would return as he left the world. And we know that his second coming will be with the sounding of a trumpet. And what really is the second coming of Christ? other than really the, the full unveiling of the reality that currently exists right now. It's like just pulling back the curtain to see what's really happening right now, that, but we're veiled from seeing. And that is that Christ has conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne. To him has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That reality exists right now as we're gathered here together on this July 31st day. That reality exists. Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven. He is reigning until all of his enemies are made his footstool. That's why throughout the book of Revelation at the throne of God is Christ the Lamb. And throughout Revelation, he's receiving worship, glad, jubilant worship. Before the throne, there's singing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. In fact, that's all that's left before this ultimate reality will be unmistakably revealed. Psalm 47 ended with the princes of the peoples gathering as the people of the God of Abraham. The prophet Isaiah foresaw that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. After his resurrection, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And his ascending words were, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember when Jesus said in John 
12.32, that when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What's that mean? It means that Christ, the crucified and resurrected king who has gone up, he is reigning, and now the gospel is going out. It's from Palestine to Palatine. Has anyone ever done that here before? And so people like us can come in and come under the protection of his shield and be sheltered from his wrath by his righteousness. He's on high, he's lifted up, the gospel's going out to the nations, which means we can become part of the people of the God of Abraham. We can be not his enemies, but his glad subjects who praise him and worship him. So as someone has put it, when we look at Psalm 47 in the context of the whole Bible, we see that the great occasion of gladness is the ascension of Messiah to heaven and the consequent spread of the gospel and the reign of righteousness over the nations. So we've seen what it meant in its original context. We see what it means in the whole Bible. Now, what's the application for us today? I have three more things. Three more things. Number one, if you're not a Christian, you're in rebellion against the king of all the earth. And he is so patient. He is so kind. He is permitting you to continue to live on his turf for the meantime, despite your snubbing of him. But friends, his kindness will not last forever. The king is coming again. And if you're not part of his people who have bowed the knee and worshipped him, you'll be the recipient of his terrible wrath. And so listen, you need to repent. You must acknowledge that you deserve punishment and then put your faith in Christ's work on the cross to cover you, to shield you. The reality is that God has set his king on heavenly Zion, his holy hill, and so be wise and be warned and serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish eternally. You need to come to Christ right now. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will give you that durable, lasting thrill that you're searching for with sports or success or sex or all the other things the world chase after for these fleeting little pleasures, nothing else will satisfy like knowing the king of the universe loves you. And today's the day of salvation for you. You can repent, put your trust in him, and come into his kingdom. I pray that that happens to you today if you're not a Christian. Second application, if you are a Christian, I just, uh, just briefly want to just encourage us to remember that we have a king. We have a king who's reigning. He knows what he's doing. He is on high. He's gone up. Christ is reigning right now, and this fact should give us great confidence. It should give us great peace as we live. In the meantime, in this, this world where Satan's crumbling kingdom is still wreaking havoc, and it seems to be strong at times, and it makes us feel like what I said is real, that Christ is reigning isn't real, and what's really real is all these other things that that distract us and fill us with fear and anxiety. But you're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it will last forever. 
And Jesus is not some puny little figure of the past. He is a powerful, presently reigning king who is working out his sovereign purposes. He knows what he's doing. Don't be tempted to go back and join the world. Don't be overwhelmed by the world. Don't put your hope in princes of this world. Presidents are going to come and go. All of them are crooked. Jesus is pure and righteous. He's on his throne. He is supreme. The Supreme Court is not supreme. King Jesus is, and his kingdom is all justice. Just keep your hope set on him. Don't be dismayed. Don't be downcast. Look up. We have a king. That's the second application. And the third one, I'll just close on this. If you believe this stuff that I've tried to show you is in Psalm 47 and the whole Bible, then sing. <laughs> sing with all that you have. Be a singing church, Embassy Church. Christ's enthronement calls for enthusiasm. There are churches that focus a lot on music and, and singing and emotional expressiveness. And sometimes you can be like, wait, okay, it's kind of fun. It kind of gets me moving, but what's, what's the point? Like, what, why are we singing and shouting? It has to make sense. I'm not telling you just to kind of do crazy stuff and just think deeply about the Bible and the truths and the world that it presents to us. And, and think it out until you feel it. There's a logical reason for singing. Our worship services are, I know yours are, I've seen it already, saturated with scripture. Sermons play a big role. But also a huge part of the service has to be singing. It's supposed to be singing. So carefully curated songs that express glorious truths that come as part of well-crafted liturgies that give you the reason for why you should sing. And then when it's time to sing, sing. Sing loudly with gusto, with your whole bodies involved from deep in your diaphragm, right? Sing. Sunday services, they're not, this is not a stage performance. You can get better concerts other places. This is not a great a lecture that you come to. This is not a, 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 a you're watching something happen up here. It's, it's a participatory event. Corporate worship is supposed to be participatory. And the way the New Testament envisions that mostly is, is it calls us to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So singing to one another and to God is very important for God's people. So brothers and sisters of embassy, sing. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Maybe you feel self-conscious about your voice. Just sing. This is not about you. Nobody's listening to you perform. This is about God and the worth of Jesus. Sing. Sing loudly. Put everything you have into it. Don't be shy. I realize that's a bit odd in our culture today. Most people don't do that. In fact, the only place I can think of uh, today, other than here, where this is happening, is probably at a baseball game during the seventh inning stretch, right? Even the national anthem before the baseball game, those have become mostly performative, individual performances, right? And that's, that's a song that's pretty hard to sing. Um, but in church... We pick singable songs so that we can all sing together.
because we've been redeemed by the king. Christ's enthronement calls for enthusiasm. One last thing I'll say is I know that sometimes you don't feel like singing, right? You don't always feel enthusiastic, and that's okay because there are many moods in the Bible, and the Psalms actually reflect a lot of those. There are jubilant Psalms. There are also Psalms in the minor key. If you're feeling lament, if you're feeling sorrow, if you're feeling discouragement, there's a psalm for that. But I would say there's always a reason to praise. Because no matter what is happening, it's not a cliche to say that Christ is on his throne. Christ is on his throne. And we, his people who have the faith of Abraham, have been spared eternal death and given eternal life. We can sing about that. And often in the very act of singing, the Spirit comes and ministers to our souls as we're doing it and makes the realities become more vivid to our hearts. So let me pray. Let me pray for, for us, for you as a church. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a word that's um, for every occasion. Thank you for this particular psalm that challenges us challenges us with great truth of your, your exaltation. I pray that you would free up your people's hearts, open up their mouths to sing, having, uh, having their minds informed and their hearts stirred to now worship you jubilantly. You deserve all praise and glory. We could never give you all the praise and glory that you deserve, but we thank you for your mercy. That makes us want to try. And so we worship you now, our great God and Savior. Amen.